uh, we're going to continue our series in James. James, uh, living faith is what we're calling this, the law of liberty. Um, James 2, and then we'll finish, we'll go through chapter, uh, we'll finish chapter 2, and then we'll get on to, to chapter 3 and 4 in the coming weeks. James 2, 14 to 20. We'll pray, and then I'll just work our way through it, through the text, as we have been doing, and just make some comments as we go, just for, so we're all thinking about the passage together. James 2, 14 to 20, living faith. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father and God, I ask and pray that you would guide us, that you would challenge us, that you uh, ultimately would give us eyes of faith. We desire to serve your kingdom with a faith that is very much alive. So grant us your spirit, we pray in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. All right, let's look at verse 14, James 2.14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? So <clears throat> we've been studying James. James has already intimated his point earlier when he spoke of people who hear the word only versus people who are doers of the word. There's a difference there. Apparently, the people that James was writing to were apt to discuss faith in terms of rationalistic presuppositions, mere mental assent, uh, a shell, an empty affirmation, uh, a mere acknowledgement of truth was apparently, in their eyes, okay. As long as you acknowledge the truth, that's, that's okay. That's good faith. And now James, of course, he goes to his central thesis. This type of faith, a faith that is built on rationalism only, mental assent only, uh, that's a faith that cannot save a man. That's the type of faith that can't save anyone. What use is it, he says, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? And he asks, a, and this is a rhetorical technique, and we call it a rhetorical question for, for a reason. Can that faith save him? Obviously, it, it cannot. A faith that never expresses itself is a spurious faith that cannot save the works that James is referring to, of course, isn't the works of the law that Paul would often talk about and discuss, something that Paul would critique. Rather, James, of course, he's focusing on genuine service, service towards other people, um, what we can call ethical and judicial actions of true piety towards other people. Um, Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, he calls it genuine, it's faith working through love. That's, you know, they're on the same page on that regard. So the principle here is laid out, then he's going to illustrate it. Well, what, what use is it if he has faith but no works? Can that faith save him? He's already saying no, <laughs> but let's illustrate. Look at verses 15, 16, and 17. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, says to them rather, go in peace be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now, <laughs> this is an interesting situation. Here we have a very pious, um, theologically astute, religious person giving his blessing to someone in need. He says, go in peace. And, you know, such a wonderful statement of blessing, right? Go in peace. Grace and peace to you. Go in peace. Um, this man is, is full of faith. 
the person's in need, but he has faith. He says, go in peace. God will provide for you. God will provide for you, I'm sure. However, the problem here is that the person didn't go to his pantry, pull out some food, uh, or go to his closet and pull out some clothes and give it to the unfortunate brother or sister. Assuming this is someone in, in the Christian realm. He uses the language brother or sister. That typically describes uh, someone in, in the faith, the house of faith. Uh, Paul says in Galatians, you know, let us do good to all, especially those, especially those who are Christians, especially those who name the name of Christ. So James says, look, what on earth would compel someone to think that this behavior is good? James, he criticizes this prayer, go in peace, a prayer of blessing. He criticizes the prayer. He says it does no good. Simply blessing someone in need um, without meeting that need is worthless, he says. Faith that is not accompanied with action isn't just useless or unacceptable. James says it's dead. If faith has no works, it's dead being by itself. So we understand from the Bible that genuine faith is one that, as we saw back in verses 8 and 9 last week, it rejects partiality. Um, Genuine faith embraces law-keeping, and law-keeping can only stem from a spirit-given heart full of faith and obedience. That's the train of thought. If you have genuine faith, that faith is going to look like something. But someone who's hearing James's letter might stand up in the assembly in the synagogue and say, hold on, I object to this statement that faith without works is dead. And here's what that objection is in verse 18. But someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works, right? You do all these works of piety, good job, good on you. But I have faith. And James says, well, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now we have a theological argument to deal with. James's interlocutor, his his alleged um, conversation partner here believes that faith and deeds are basically separate gifts that, that God gives, right? You, you could say it like this. Well, you have the gift of faith. That's your gift. But I have the gift of works. That's the argument here. <clears throat> this is a person, of course, who is relying on rationalism to divorce theology from real-life circumstance which, by the way, is one of the perennial problems which we're going to get to through the vehicle of pietism. We're divorcing theological life from practical application. That is a classic Christian error. All right? And <laughs> we're, wa- we're walking through that in various ways all the time, I think, in the church. Someone who wants to say, well, we believe in God's law, but we don't, we don't think it applies out there. That's a crazy thinking. What do you, why would you suggest such a thing? So James replies that faith which is not expressed or seen outwardly through works is no different than a person who has no faith at all. That's his argument here. He's basically saying if you claim to have faith, but it doesn't work itself out in ethical judicial treatment towards others, acts of piety that are good, Right, serving someone, mowing their lawn for them when they're in need, yada, yada, the list goes on. If that doesn't work itself out, you might as well be a Satanist. You might as well be an atheist. They're the same, you're at the same playing field. <clears throat> and, and that's because it can't be seen. It's a figment of the imagination. It's, it's um, conceptual snobbery. 
uh, or, or, or we could call it pedantic confessionalism. We are reformed. Capital R. We have the confessions. You know, that, this, this conceptual snobbery. Now, it's interesting in this verse, the Greek is actually very um, difficult because we're not entirely sure where James ends his illustration. If you have your Bible, you'll notice that some of that's in quotations. Um, the NASB puts it all in quotations, which I don't like, as if James is saying, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. I don't think that's actually the way it works. I think he, what he was saying in terms of a quote was, you have faith and I have works. I think that's all he's um, attributing to his conversation partner. And then James speaks. He, he, he pulls from that illustration that, that you know, the, the truth that this person is showing is faith without works. But James is saying, show, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. Um, showing faith without works is impossible. And why is it impossible to show faith without works? Because faith without works is dead. Uh, it's not true spirit-given faith. It's this metaphysical wishful thinking. And we'll come back to this in a little bit. <clears throat> Look at verses 19 and 20. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. They fear. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? I love that language. You foolish fellow. Sounds like a Monty Python line. <laughs> that faith without works is useless. Interesting word. James, he drives his point home. Listen, you guys, you are pious Jewish Christians. You know, the people he's writing to, presumably. You recite the Shema every single day, the confession that God is one, that Cody read from Deuteronomy. Um, you, that's what you do. That's... That's a great confession to have, right? You adhere to true doctrine. Good for you. The demons know and believe the very same thing. They have great doctrine. They know. And in light of that doctrine, though, what do they do? They cower. They shudder. They fear. See, Satan's minions are fully orthodox in their theology. They are super confessional. <laughs> and in fact... Um, they, in a lot of ways, they give a truer testimony to the truth than the apostles. If you remember in the book of Mark, chapter 1, there's this confession of Jesus being the Holy One of God. You know, they, they know. They knew right away what, you know, the, what was going on. <laughs> the gig was up. Jesus is here. Oh, no. That's kind of their disposition. So they believe the truth about God. Uh, obviously, the apostles were learning and growing in their maturation process. Sanctification is a human experience, not a, an experience for those who are either fallen angels or angels. However, <clears throat> mere belief does not distinguish a person <clears throat> of intellectual ascent from demons. Mere belief does not distinguish a person of intellectual ascent from demons. That You can't have a distinguishing feature there. In fact, James seems to be making the point, I think this is what he's getting at, that those who believe but do not act on this alleged belief ought to be shuddering like the demons. You believe that God is, is one. Great, the demons do that as well. And what do they do in response to that confession? They fear. You have faith without works. You should fear. You should fear. You should shudder. You should be uns uncertain. 
And don't you get it, you senseless fool, you foolish fellow. <laughs> See, a faith that doesn't do more than what the demons do is useless, he says. And that Greek word simply means it's inactive or it's, it's indolent. It's without, it's without any real-time value. There's no tangible value that can be um, attributed to a faith that is without works because it's dead. So James basically, this is, this is why I kind of chose the angle for this passage that I did. James basically destroys Christian rationalism here. Destroys it altogether. If God is truly one and monotheism is a Christian doctrine, and we do not see that as a problem with three persons, one God. We can say the Shema as well and be fully orthodox with a greater understanding of who God is, being Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But if that's all true, then it follows that God requires, God demands, God expects corresponding behavior to that confession. So doctrinal assent onlyism will not suffice. Look at verses 21 through 24. We have a scriptural argument now to back this theology up. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected, that is, completed. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him, or credited to him, as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Just so you know, this uh, <clears throat> is one of the classic texts an unbeliever who has studied this for any amount of time will go to and say, look, James says justified by works and not by faith alone. But you go to Romans and Paul says you're justified by faith alone and not by works of the law. And they say, ha ha, gotcha. <laughs> this is a classic text for that. <clears throat> the, when we think about the doctrine of, of justification, one that Paul does expound upon quite um, quite a lot actually in the book of Romans and especially Romans and Galatians together. This is the classic text for the doctrine is found in the story of Abraham. When you think of righteousness and imputation, when you're not thinking of Pauline theology, you're actually going to go to Abraham. That's like the classic place you would go. Now, <clears throat> I want you to understand this is not without significant and severe disagreement and discussion. So I'm going to try to be as clear as possible. Paul and James are not at odds. You know, Luther had some funny things to say about the book of James. The epistle of straw, he called it. Yeah, he, he said a lot of things. <laughs> um, they're not at odds, and we shouldn't consider Paul and James at odds ever. What they are emphasizing are this, different aspects of the same thing. I think of like a coin. You would emphasize the head, you know, and somebody might emphasize the tail. Same coin. They're emphasizing different aspects of it, though. For Paul, Abraham was justified by faith alone, which means that he was declared not guilty and righteous by his faith. That is a reformed doctrine. That is, it's a biblical doctrine. Paul is right. However, James is emphasizing that Abraham demonstrated to be righteous. He was demonstrating his righteousness by his works. And the word justified, dikaios, dikaiosenaek theu, is the Greek word, uh, the righteousness of God. There's different words for it. And, but they're very similar. 
In fact, righteousness and justice are like as close as you can be. In English, we have two different words, but in Greek, you had a very similar line of thinking, some semantics with regard to the roots of different words. But basically, they're like the same. When Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it would not be a theological error for you to say, seek God and his, uh, seek God and his kingdom and his justice. The two go hand in hand. They're very much, when you think of like words and how they're used and understood, they're very much related. <clears throat> so the word justified, it carries a lot of different connotations. And I believe that we can distinguish Paul's emphasis on courtroom language. Um, Paul has very eschatological kind of courtroom language. There's a lot of different um, aspects to what he means by what is a person, what does it mean that they're justified? In Paul's mind, he's, it's very, it's legal terms. He's very much using legal terms. But I think we can distinguish the legal aspect from basically James's emphasis on exemplary faithfulness. There's kind of two sides of the same coin. So, and if you want to ask later on some of that, we can expound upon it, but I didn't want to take too much time. But that's kind of the, the idea between Paul and James. They're, they're saying the same thing. They're just saying it a little bit differently. They're nuancing it differently. So that said, what do we know about Abraham? Well, God accepted Abraham's initial faith, Genesis 15:6. However, it was incomplete, Genesis 15:8 and Genesis 16:2. His faith was enough to be declared right by God, no doubt, but it wasn't fully established yet. And that's the idea of the relationship between being justified by faith and then sanctification working out of that. Imputed righteousness, that's what God gives us, is a righteousness that grows and flourishes. So you don't walk out of the courtroom of God and then go back to the same old business. When you walk out of the courtroom of God, declared not guilty because his son paid your price, you are a changed person. You live differently. Now, Abraham may have not fully understood his Christology because Jesus was a few thousand years off, (laughs) but he understood that he was declared not guilty. His faith was then proved. The veracity of his faith was then proved. So imputed righteousness, when you are declared not guilty by God, that's a righteousness that inherently grows and it flourishes in your life. That's what we call sanctification. So Abraham's faith, it matured as he walked with God. And the situation with Isaac, if you recall, was the ultimate test. That was the, even Jews today, when you think of the ultimate test, they go to this passage. And that's Genesis 22, seven chapters after the Genesis 15 incident. And what happened there? Well, his sacrifice of Isaac. He demonstrated a mature faith, and God reaffirmed his promises to him. God said, take your son up on the hill, on the mountain, carrying wood on his back, just like Jesus, and you need to kill him. He's the sacrifice. And what did Abraham do? He did it. He went up, got ready to kill his son, and God said, wait, I understand. Your faith is now complete. You trust me. And, of course, God provided a ram instead of Isaac being sacrificed. Isaac being the promise, and all, of, all of the promises of God hinged on him. That was the promise. I'm going to make you a, a, a great nation. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. He has one kid, and they're old. And God says, put all of that on the line for me. That's faith. 
See, James then, he can say that Abraham's faith was, was perfected, it was completed, it was found to exemplify a glorious fullness, to use some of Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 12.9. So Abraham, according to 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, Abraham was a friend of God. And what do friends do? They assist each other. Abraham was a friend of God. Moses was called a friend of God as well. See, when James says that we are justified by works and not by faith alone, he means the same thing as Paul, but he takes it in a different direction. James is insisting that we are justified by a true faith when that faith is alive. When the faith is alive. And the only way to know that it's alive is by how it expresses itself. That and only that is what demonstrates the righteousness of God. Um, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we accidentally um, <laughs> skipped over, by the way. My bad. Um, but we said it last week, and I just put it in there again. But it, it talks about this true and lively faith. It's a true and lively faith. <clears throat> when Paul references the works of the law, he is primarily focused on the ceremonies of the Mosaic Law. Circumcision, the particular dietary laws, Sabbath rules, new moons and festivals, those types of things. Those old covenant boundary markers are no more. The people of God are in Christ. They are established to be faithful to Christ because Christ was the faithful one. So if you really want to get nerded out on Greek, you have to discern <laughs> um, what is uh, the faithfulness of Christ. Is it an objective genitive or a subjective genitive? Is it faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ? And theologians argue repeatedly about how to translate that in the book of Galatians. And I just think you don't have to pick a side. I think both are true. <laughs> we are justified by the faithfulness of Christ. It's him going to the cross that made it possible. But that faithfulness is given to us as a gift. So it's both. But that faithfulness now, we're in Christ. That's the marker. That's, that's the marker that's meant to be expressed. Look at verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? James also illustrates his point with Rahab, whose faith helped the Israelites, obviously, when they needed it most. Her faith was proven to be true because it did something righteous. Righteous deception is what we can call what she had done. This whole idea of um, hiding Jews during a Nazi holocaust is a righteous endeavor. See, her justification was proven by how it was manifested in her works. Uh, Jesus, of course, says, obviously, by their fruits you shall know them. And then he drives his point home. Look at verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James finalizes his appeal, reminding us, reminding the church of the correlation Faith without works is a body without a soul dead and fit for burial. See, translating belief into action is at the core of what it means to be made in the image of God. Just like having a body and a soul is what it means in part to be made the image of God. To be a whole person, a human person. Body and soul. Life, life is the union of body and soul. And thus faith which is alive, is the union between belief and action. That's the issue here. Even, even when a situation like Abraham seems just downright impossible, completely incredulous, unbelievable, faith working in love, faith 
doing something righteous is the faith that God gives and it's the faith that God requires and justifies. In other words, faith must be the real deal. Now, one of the greatest, I think, heresies, one of the, if not the greatest heresy of our time is pietism. And James's theology absolutely destroys the presuppositions of pietism. Pietism is a dualistic belief that the spiritual takes precedent, precedence rather, over the material. That's the idea. So prayer, Bible reading, and church attendance, um, and submitting to the gatekeepers, <laughs> so on and so forth. Um, they are thus, those are the truly spiritual practices. Right? That's why there's a difference between handing out pamphlets at the mar- shopping market you know, and, and the building that is uh, apparently the next Holy of Holies, <clears throat> as it were. So those are spiritual practices. While some of you guys going to work unclogging toilets, that's not very spiritual. Sorry, plumbers. <laughs> so rooted in enlightenment rationalism, man's mind, that's what the enlightenment was. Man's mind is the ultimate authority, and thus man's mind... And what he thinks becomes the way he lives his life. Rene Descartes, famous, cogito ergo sum, right? I think, therefore I am. That's the, that's the classic argument of the Enlightenment. Pietism in the church has been one of the most destructive influences on Christianity. It's probably the most destructive. When man's mind becomes the sovereign starting point, it makes sense that he would value this above his neighbor and the material world. Do you get the train of thought? When you elevate the mind, the mind becomes the most important thing. And when your mind becomes more important, confession becomes more important than action. Having all the right doctrine becomes more important than speaking up for our preborn neighbors. It's pietism. Coupled with what we can call from uh, you know, Jean-Paul, Jean-Paul Sartrean existentialism, the, the church has adopted this horrific theology. So the only way that you can truly make yourself, that's existentialism, right? You got to make yourself. You, you came into this world with nothing. You got to make yourself. Sort of the Oprianity stuff, right? When, the only way to make yourself is by focusing on spiritual things. It's the only way you can do it. See, when men adopt this erroneous belief system, he seeks to escape the world. He retreats or revolts against maturity and historical growth, and thus he finds himself irrelevant to the world, completely irrelevant. The reason this application, when I was thinking through this this week, the reason that it applies from the text the way it does is because I believe James is he's already dismantling this notion entirely. There is no room for doctrinal assent divorced from practical obedience. There's no room for that in Christianity. This, this form of dualism, and that's what it is, is co- incompatible with Christian doctrine. See, when God, when God created us in His image, He created us to be whole beings. James, he picks this up in verse 26. You can theologically distinguish between a body and a soul, that which is immaterial and that which is material. We can theologically, anthropologically, any of these ologies, really, you can distinguish, but you can't separate them out and, and expect superior functionality. You can't. What happens when the soul is taken from a body? What is the body? Dead. It's dead. And what do we do with dead bodies? We bury them, 
planting a seed, waiting for the resurrection harvest. That's, that's the theology. In the same way, though, you can, you can theologically distinguish between faith and works, but you can't separate them and expect it to function. That's the argument James is making. And he says rather emphatically, you can't do it. You can't separate them out. When, when God ripped your heart of stone out to give you a heart of flesh, he did, he did this without needing a warranty agreement, a recall. Whoops, that malfunctioned. Regeneration doesn't have recall program. God does not give people dead faith. True God-glorifying faith can only come about when the Spirit of God takes up residence inside of you. And when the Spirit takes up residence, things change. Things change. The house is cleaned up. Everything is now different. And the faith you possess, itself definitely a gift from God, Ephesians 2. That faith is a true faith, a faith that functions. It's a faith that works. It does something righteous. So James discredits altogether the idea that you can have a dead faith that works. He discredits it. It's gone. It's, it doesn't work. Practically, theologically, philosophically, does not work. If it's, a, if it's a work of righteousness or a work of justice, it can only come from a lively faith. That's why the abolition of abortion depends on proper doctrine. Because we, we want the activity, but we have to have the theology. And you don't have to pick. You can have both. If it's righteous and it's a pursuit of justice, it comes from faith. True faith. There's no righteousness in dead faith. There's no righteousness in justice in mental assent only. You know, this whole idea of like today, it's like, I'm going to send good vibes your way. <laughs> and I don't know what that is. I don't know how to do it. I maybe have to take class, but I'm going to vibe you good things. And it's, I don't know, it's like an X-Men thing or something. I don't know. but <laughs> So there's no righteousness in that. You can have a confession of faith that makes the Westminster Confession look like a toddler drew it out. Right? But that will not be the authentic authentication of your faith. The, authentic <coughs> the authentication of faith can only be found in what the faith does. That's how, that's how it works. And this is another way of saying that a maple tree doesn't produce apples right? The type of fruit has to be consistent with the type of tree it is. And when the fruit is rotten, the tree is dead. Jesus could not have been any more clear on this issue. You know the tree by its fruit. What pietism seeks to do is divorce things like law and grace. This is why that divorce of law and grace is so prevalent, in, in, especially in dispensational camps. Um, even, even in New Covenant theology camps, this divorce of law and grace, there's this divorce of faith and works in pietism. You know, the pietist elevates the mind. He says, ha ha, look at my doctrine. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't my doctrine so awesome? You all are dumb because you don't have my doctrine. That's pietism. This version of Christian ra rationalism is, to, to be blunt, it's damnable. Jesus Christ doesn't give himself and the Holy Spirit to us so that we can keep those gifts to ourselves. Regeneration isn't given to you so that you can hide in the corner with your Bible and refuse to ever practically express that in your day-to-day. -day. Doctrinal onlyism is not consistent with Christian faith and practice. 
And I think this is absolutely why matters of injustice continue to just keep running us over. Pietism is, is what gave birth absolutely to statism. And now we're too, you know, we're too scared to tell the ordinary teenager to stop stealing people's things, the state. Because of pietism, we quite literally removed ourselves from the public square, and now we wonder why our nation has just fallen into the ditch. The only way that we're going to get matters of injustice sorted out is by repenting of pietism. We must repent for not loving our neighbor as the law of God requires. <clears throat> it's that simple. This, the apathy with regard to uh, things like abortion and police brutality, um, excessive taxation. My goodness, we could make a list, couldn't we? Especially in a theonomic church. Boy, we have a list. We have a big list. It's very long. <laughs> And we believe it quite passionately. Those, the apathy is what has to be repented of. The apathy. That's what pietism gives you. See, evangelicalism, by and large, will spend an inordinate amount of time and money on conferences about justification by faith alone, all the while, for example, vaccines are being mandated and pushed on people. Really. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting that the doctrine is unimportant. Nor am I suggesting that it's not worth defending. It is. But what, are, what is our doctrine if we're not practicing it? What is belief in the Trinity if we lack the epistemological self-consciousness necessary to apply God's word and seek justice for widows and orphans? What is it? What good is it? How can we possibly convince someone that our gospel is sufficient enough to bless someone into heaven if there's no real-time historical application? Said another way, how can we believe that a truncated heaven-only gospel is going to do anything to combat tyranny, the tyranny that we see around us? See, pietism has crippled the church by reducing the gospel and keep, keeping people handcuffed, trapped inside this dualistic paradigm. And the example that just kept coming to mind is, is just the most recent vaccine. The sermon, the articles, the issue that as we've been dealing with it, you know, I, I didn't receive a ton of negative, negative comments on it. Um, but the comments I did as I kind of went back and, and looked and was just thinking about it this week, the underlying issue is pietism in every single one. <laughs> Jordan, you remember the one comment, like, why would you ever talk about something like that from the pulpit? And is this appropriate for us? Yeah. <laughs> pietism. That's what it is. I mean, it's just that mentality. Um, People, people really struggle, and you may have family members that really struggle to see how the gospel of the kingdom affects a particular issue. It's so far from people's minds. Uh, they have no categories for it because they have, they have been trained by pastors who have been trained by seminaries to keep you know, political issues from the pulpit. Um, as if, you know, you've heard this, I'm sure all of you, you know, as if we can say abortion is a political issue only. <laughs> how about a human rights violation? <laughs> how, how, how about love in your neighbor? Those things. I, I think you see the point. Three, three times James says this, and we'll end here. Three times. Whenever the Bible emphasizes three, things like that, we need to pay attention. Three times James says it. Verse 17, even so, if it has no works, faith is dead, being by itself. Verse 20, Faith without works is useless. Verse 26, faith without works is dead. 
Three times James has put this in our laps, and three times he has made his point. True faith is only true because it is lively. We know the difference between a cadaver and a person who is alive because what happens? The body moves. The body moves. In a similar way, we know the difference between a dead faith and an alive faith because a faith that's alive moves. It works itself out in love. It seeks justice. It, it considers the person next to you more important than himself. This is living faith, the only type of faith there is. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we glorify you. We glorify you for this passage. Thank you for your spirit empowering and enlightening James and guiding him to, to write this to not only the church, um, his original audience, but to us today. What a, what a remarkable passage. So we're grateful, God, that you've given us your law word. We're grateful that you've also given us um, your spirit, who is the one who orchestrated uh, your word. And so by the spirit, we confess Christ. We confess his lordship. Father, we confess that, um, that the triune God is worthy of our admiration, our praise. Um, we want to be people who not only rely on the authority of God's word, but people who do something with it. So we ask and pray for your help. May your spirit give us that wisdom to apply it. God, would you teach this to our children? May our children be raised up for the next generation of fighters and warriors for your kingdom. God, would you equip them, give them their purpose for the kingdom. God, would you teach each of them what it is they need for um, your kingdom in order to advance. God, help them to discern their gifts. Help them to learn as they grow and, and read and write and all these things. God, may, may these children who are homeschooled for your glory be an army to be reckoned with. Father, we glorify you now as we take communion together, as we celebrate it with a meal. Um, you are good to us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.